0: There's something that Women in Transport have been working on, and Karen's part of the working group, is that when you're creating a model to try and create a bit more diversity in an organisation, it has to start with the touch points before people even start to think about applying. And one thing that Karen's working with them on is that each employee, be it male or female, but more for females is they must have an individual career pathway the minute they come into the organisation.
1: Today's guest on Women Talk Back learned how to lead from her former boss and mentor, Richard Branson. This involved the frivolity of being inside, literally, the Yellow Submarine in Liverpool and in more serious situations that involved tragedy and death on the railways when her employer, Virgin Trains, owned the West Coast Mainline. Paul McCartney said of Yellow Submarine, It's a happy song, that's all. The song was released as a double A-side with Eleanor Rigby, a Lennon and McCartney collaboration that deployed empathy to reach beyond their traditional rock audience of the time by commenting upon the neglected concerns and fates of the elderly. This contrast, perhaps, offers an insight into the leadership approach of Jane Cole, the managing director of Blackpool Transport, who asserts that kindness is not weakness. Yellow Submarine characterised experimentation by the Beatles in the recording studio and Jane has been experimenting with new approaches to leadership by injecting empathy into neglected areas of business and people on the filed Coast. If Jane is to be characterised by a Beatles song, it must be Ticket to Ride, because she started her career at British Rail and worked her way up through the ranks. After a career break undertaking charity work in Rwanda, Jane swapped public transport on rail tracks for buses, but with a side order of trams on tracks, just to be sure. John Lennon said that he and Paul McCartney collaborated by writing songs Eyeball to Eyeball, and by close communication they had a common purpose. Jane and her colleague Karen Cooper have created a common purpose for Blackpool Transport, and in a first for Women Talk Back, we have two guests being interviewed by two members of the Backhouse Jones team, Laura Hadzik and Joe dawson gerard If you like this format, be sure to get back to us by liking this podcast or subscribing. The Beatles started exploring new songs at Abbey Road. Here at Backhouse Jones, our sound production takes place down under in Australia, where Mandy Turner expertly makes it all come together. One day, all podcasts will be made this way. And it will be mandatory to have an Aussie introducing the broadcast. But until then, you can choose to contact me, Mandy, at www.mandyturner.com.au.
2: Okay, so we've a bit of a first Four Women Talk back today. We've got not one but two guests for you. We're joined by Jane Cole and Karen Cooper. Blackpool Transport. So welcome to Women Talk Back, ladies, and thank you for giving us your time today. Jo Dawson-Gerrard is also with me for today's session. Hi, Jo. Hello, Laura. Yeah, we're going to hear about the interesting careers of not one but two guests. So Jane, starting with you, Managing Director of Blackpool Transport at present and also the current CPT President. So let's go back to the beginning in terms of
0: your career and how you became involved in transport. Okay, well it's lovely to be asked to join you today. I'm Jane Cole, Managing Director of Blackpool Transport currently. My career started in the early eighties when I left school at 16. I did leave school because at 16, in them days, as I like to call it, <laughs> you had choices, you could go on and do A-levels or you could start to work. And I come from a very working class background and my family weren't rich. And I just really wanted to get out there and and start working and earning money. So I took a job when I left school at 16 with the Refuge Assurance Company and spent some time being a monthly banker's order clerk, which was the most boring job on earth, I've got to say. And I was fortunate within six months to get another job because them days, jobs were, you know, they weren't at a premium. You could get jobs anywhere. I transferred into the civil service and worked for the Department of Fraud for a few years, which was enjoyable. I learned a lot. But my passion was, my dad used to work for the railway. My granddad was a steam engine driver. So all around the dinner table in the evening, they'd talk about what's happened on the railway today. And we used to get free passes. And these free passes, if you were a dependent of somebody who worked on the railway, entitled you to go anywhere in the UK free of charge. And I just thought, what's going to happen when I haven't got my free passes anywhere? (laughs) Um, And you could keep them up to being 18. So when I got to 18, I thought, "Mm, I need to do something about this. So I applied for a job with British Rail. And I passed the entrance exam. And on my 18th birthday, I was successful in getting a job starting at Manchester in the civil engineers working for British Rail. So I was delighted because I got to keep my free passes. And do you know what? I thought this could be a career path. Because in, in those days, you know, British Rail was huge. There was, you know, the the, the civils, there was signals and telecom, there was a freight bit of the organisation. And then there was operations, which briefly talked on customer in those days. I only spent 12 months in civil engineering when I was promoted into the signal and telecom into the drawing office. And I got to learn much about the technical side, really enjoyed that. My parents moved. I was born in Manchester. My parents moved from Manchester to Blackpool because my dad's job took him to Blackpool. And by that time, I was a single mum and my parents spent a lot of time looking after my son for me. So it was decided that I'd try and get a move to Blackpool as well, which I did. And I joined the staff at Blackpool North Station just prior to 1990. And I had a mixed job. I was working in the signing on point. I was doing rosters. I got a bit of time in the ticket office. Now I was doing some station announcing, good all-rounder. Really enjoyed it. Within a short period of time, again, I was promoted to go and work as a, a retail supervisor in the ticket office. That was a time when the railways were starting to get ready for privatization. So it was Gosh. called organizing yeah. for quality. Yeah. I was really good at the, the retail side, the customer side, and, and dealing with employees. So there was a job that came up as a quality manager. I applied for it based at Preston and unbeknown to me, I was so lucky to end up getting the job. So I moved from Blackpool to Preston. I was the first female manager ever at Preston Station. But more importantly, I was responsible for taking the organising for quality ethos through the north bit of the patch. I went into the job with Gusto. I was responsible for making sure that operators and divisional manager staff got to grips with thinking customer and employee rather than can the trains run on time? And it was like pushing water uphill. Nobody wanted <laughs> this, but by God, they they had to do it. And it was a learning curve, you know, working in a male orientated environment and trying to really stand my ground with people that times humiliated me. So for example, if we were in a management meeting, I'd be the last one on the agenda and be very little time for talking about my subject Mm -hmm. because it was pushed down as not being important. You know, there were times when I got excluded for very important meetings because it wasn't deemed that quality and customer and employee were part of that. But after having started that, it stood me in good stead because once organising for quality came in, Intercity and regional railways split, Mm -hmm. I was able to get a job with Intercity. And again, within 12 months, I've been promoted to run the whole of the onboard offer for intercity, for everything from Scotland all the way down to London. So I spent time looking at motor rail. We had the overnight services then, and I was responsible for all the catering, went on the train for many years until the railways privatised When they privatized in 1997, I was an MS5, so a very senior manager. I was fortunate to be asked to stay on by Virgin Trains, who took over in 1997, and from 1997 until 2014, I was part of the success story where we brought in the Pendolino and the Voyagers. It revolutionized we it, didn't it? With yes, private we did. money. Yeah, 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 and that really is a rapid tale about you know how my career brought me here in 2014 to Blackpool Transport. And obviously, you know, I've been here since and a lot of the stuff that I've learnt, I've been able to use in the transformation model that we're doing here today. So how did that transition from rail to Blackpool Transport come about? When I left the railway, because I've been on the railway, you know, since I was 18. I'm in my early 60s now. i actually just 60. I'll 61 next year and I don't mind people knowing that. But all I ever knew and all I thought I could do was railways. So, when I left the railways in July 2014, my local church was taking a concession of missionaries out to Rwanda to do some work in the local hospital in a place called Kibagora, which is near Kigali, which is the centre there. And I just thought, well, I'm obviously at a turning point in my life. I haven't got a clue what I'm going to do when I leave the railway. So, I booked to go on this missionary tour to Kibagora. We left and we went, and we were there for I think just under three weeks with all the travelling that was involved as well. And really my remit was to go and to to help out with missionary work, but also to work in the polytechnic college with some of the student doctors and nurses and some of the younger people to look at how we could do management training with some of the doctors and nurses, but also how we could influence some of the younger students to be more entrepreneurial because working for Virgin, I had Mm -hmm. some entrepreneurial skills training. And I spent some time out there thinking, you know, wow, if I can do this, surely my skills must be transferable, you know, across another organization. I suppose, really, what that gave me was the liberty to try out something without being managed, without being part of a corporate organization and having a bit of free spirit around me. And in those nearly three weeks, I got so much confidence about myself. And I felt so empowered about it. I'd left my family at home. I'd left my husband at home and my dogs. And here I was doing something for myself for a change. I came back and a colleague said, you know, this job was up for grabs." I thought, I'm going to apply for it. I didn't particularly want to go back in transport, but I wanted to do something. Yeah. And, you know, I'd started, you know, part of my railway career here. Me and my husband met in Blackpool. Mm-hmm. and We were both on the railway. So I gave it my best shot, I got the job. Within a fortnight of applying for it and going through my second interview, I'd got the job. And I think the transferable skills for me about the breadth of my CV, the fact that I've worked across so many dimensions, so much change, so many programmes that really Blackpool transport needed, that I was able to sort of like say, look, you know, if we're going to do a change programme here, I'm your person. Really, I think the transferable skills came from the realisation that you don't fit in a box when you work in an organisation. The breadth of skills that you get along the way are absolutely essential. So, you know, your CV, once you start putting it together professionally and in a very thoughtful way, it makes you realise just how much you've done in your life. And I think it was my CV that, you know, made people realise that I could actually run an organisation on my own, even though I was a corporate employee Give me Blackpool transport and let me see what I can do.
2: I think that's so important, especially now where people are looking at changing jobs, some because they have to. Um, I know personally, I always think, oh, my job is this and I, I don't have any transferable skills. But I love the way you had that sort of circuit break, which suddenly gave you the yeah. headspace to see clearly just for you and what those transferable skills were and I agree with you I think every every job have transferable skills yeah. but we do we get into a box and a rut and we think we're only good at one thing don't we mm-hmm. yeah I suppose that period in Rwanda gave you that clarity because you'd step back from everything else and you could see a lot clearer, whereas when sometimes when you're the thick of things, you can't really see the wood from the trees, can you? Because you're in the midst of it day yeah, in day out. all of your different hats, and mother, you know, a partner, worker. There is no time for you. And then to say, what should, what should I do next? Well, you just
0: try to work out what's for tea and if you can make it home in time and all the stresses at work and... It was life-changing. You know, I left version on very good terms. It was my choice to go. You know, we were at a point where the franchise had been let to first group and obviously Richard Branton wasn't very happy about that. There was a legal challenge and it was the right time for me to say, you know, if I can go, then I want to go. But I think it's like you say, you need that time to think about when you're going to change your career. Think very carefully about all the things that you've learned and how you want to apply them so they benefit you for happiness, mm. you don't want to change a career and find out you've made the wrong choice and you spend the rest of your career being very unhappy about that choice. So I think for me it was about learning that I wanted to be with people I wanted to uh, still instigate change because I'm quite good at that. and what I wanted to do was something that was near to where I lived so I could get home to my family most nights. And I could actually live in a beautiful place, which was by the seaside. Mm. And it all came together in a holistic sort of like plan. And I was so lucky, you know, to come to a place like Blackpool with this job and be able to take an organisation that needed a change model. But beyond that, it's got a vision now. So I've been very, very lucky. Don't they say, do a job you love and you'll never work a day in your life? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's not always been lovable. It's not always been easy. It's always been very, very challenging. But I enjoy it so much that, you know, all those things just make it worthwhile. I'm going to bring Karen in now
2: because Karen's sort of story of Blackpool Transport starts shortly after your your own, Jane. So, Karen, you're currently head of stakeholders, if I've got that right, of Blackpool am. Transport. So tell us about your background before you joined Blackpool Transport.
3: So just by pure coincidence, my backstory is quite similar to Jane. So I was Manchester born and bred from a working class family, but with a very strong work ethic to the point that you didn't ever have anything unless you'd earned it. So, you know, don't get into debt or tell the truth, all that kind of stuff. I managed to scrape enough O-levels, as they were then, um, to get to do 4A levels at college. I didn't like it at all. And I realised I was just not academic and I was desperate to get out there into the world of work. So my first real job was um, an absolute baptism of fire. So I started working at DWP at their main HQ in Salford and I was processing things like maternity grants and essential items for people that couldn't afford them and I thought wow so I moan about not having to have nice things but these are people that really can't afford anything at all. It was a real awakening for me to realise that, that that sort of stuff went on and I left there because the progression wasn't quite quick enough it was very outdated and you had to wait for they were called boards at the time, you had to wait for a board to be promoted. So I got my next job at a local authority in one of the Manchester authorities. I actually ended up there for 23 years but I did quite a few different roles while I was there, but always working with customer. So then I worked in housing benefits and again saw this, you know, real poverty with people turning up at the counters behind glass telling their stories, it was really, really hard to listen to. And sometimes you couldn't help them, which was even more difficult. But I guess that gave me a bit of steel, a bit of uh, mm-hmm. fire in my belly to help people. So I progressed then, slowly through the ranks, and eventually the council decided to open a customer services department, which was quite radical at the time. So basically, if you if you needed a council service before we opened this new service, you would have to try and get directly through to highways or waste management. And quite often people were faced with a technical person who either wasn't interested, you know, was too busy to be bothered about the customer. So it was, as I say, quite radical. And what we did, we recruited internally and I managed a team of people trying to help other people. And that was wonderful. But what we encountered was a lot of these departments were very male um, dominated They just thought we were interfering and what do you know about it? And we made a real success of it and it expanded from one town hall into all the libraries across the borough. The council at the time when we were going through austerity, instead of bringing in like a big consultancy firm to look at restructuring, they wanted to create their own transformation team from the skills they got within. So I applied to be a business analyst, got trained up and I loved it. So that opened the doors to get to know about lots of different parts of the council, which was absolutely massive, thousands of employees. So I learned about childcare, social services, adult social care, finance, education. And I really sort of cut my teeth there, learning about lots of different things, but also, in the same as Jane said, really understanding that if you've got sort of a core set of values and a core set of transferable skills, You can learn about the technical stuff. It's how you apply that knowledge. And what we managed to do was do a lot of restructuring, but without actually incurring job losses, because it was just about learning about how different ways to do things. And then I left Trafford voluntarily to start a new life in Blackpool in 2013. I took voluntary redundancy, which was a huge risk for me after working there such a long time. But I wanted to start a new life here. And having that little bit of money in my back pocket enabled me to take that gamble because I'd fallen in love with somebody from Blackpool and <laughs> <laughs> moved my life up here. So we waited till my son finished school. I brought him up on my own. We packed up and came to Blackpool in 2013. That little bit of buffer meant that I could take a little bit of time out, Ooh. made sure Harry was settled at college, which was which he did, thankfully, and it's all good. And then my first job was at a local college with a large team, but in administration. And I just thought, this isn't really for me. It's not gritty enough. I need to work. I need to get under the skin of things and work with people. And then I saw the job at Blackpool Transport. And when I saw the job description, it was all about people. It was all about change, giving people a great experience. And I thought, these guys are up to something. This feels like a real change. So I didn't know anything at all about buses or trams or the transport industry apart from what I swatted up on for my interview but I realized after I was lucky enough to get the job that there was great changes afoot I think for me the biggest culture shock really was that how task focused everything was and not particularly people focused which included customer and employee so one of my main remit from Jane was please get outside these four walls Please go and see what's happening out there and how we can help people, which has been amazing. so actually getting to know the people that use our services, getting to know what's right, what we're doing wrong, what we could be doing better and that's one of the favorite parts of my job so I've built some really great relationships with stakeholders. The best one I think is the local colleges because I couldn't understand why more women weren't coming into transport yeah. So working with the local travel and tourism students has really opened my eyes because we've done surveys with them and practically all, they're all female generally apart from the odd guy here and there, but none of them would ever consider working in public transport. It's usually the aviation industry. So why was that then? Yeah, I I think it's because of the perception of Mm. public transport that it's like, do you remember on the buses back in the day <laughs> that it's really sort of crusty and stale and late know, nights and being out after dark and difficult people, and yeah, buses and trams full of weirdos that you wouldn't want to get involved with. It was really that raw when we started to really ask them. So we took a lot of their feedback and we started to think, well, okay, if their biggest turn offs for even using public transport are grumpy drivers and litter, what are we going to do about it? And we really did start to transform not only our product but the way we started to train drivers to be a lot more empathetic so we introduced disability awareness training mental health awareness training but really started to understand the way the drivers felt because quite often it turned out that the way they were presenting to customers they actually weren't that rude at all it's because they didn't know what to do because they were either embarrassed or didn't quite get the situation so we've massively integrated emotional intelligence into the training so of course it's still all about safety and technical skills but just as importantly it's about
2: people Mm. those soft skills are very important and they don't come naturally to everyone but if you help them a bit it's actually they find it easy don't they yeah massively so
3: And, and it's about allowing people to express their own Thoughts and feelings as well, but our industry is based on people. If we didn't have customers using our services, we wouldn't have any services. So it's kind of flipping it on its head. Yeah. And the other thing as well, the other massive thing is we're actually a retailer, but people didn't see it like that. We're Mm -hmm. we're selling a product, we're selling a ticket, and we're selling an experience. And I think having a a greater balance of women in there really helps with that. Yeah. Let's face it, it's mainly women on the buses, it's mainly women that do the shopping, and it sounds really old-fashioned, but that's the truth of it, isn't it? Yeah. So it's really getting to grips with that and helping helping our staff to see that it's all right to show support and empathy to your colleagues and customers, and our brand has, has really improved as a result of that.
2: So when the two of you joined Blackpool Transport, what was the sort of composition in terms of women and men within the workforce and the driving force? Can you remember that then?
0: Yeah, I mean, I remember there was only one, there was a female director that was a finance director and she'd been here for many years, Sue. And then there was a head of HR, Annie. And then we had Mandy, she was head of operations. So I think, you know, diversity-wise at the top, it was probably sixty forty. 40 okay. But I think that when you went further down and you looked at the supervisory level, because we're called supervisors then, and are not leaders, and you looked at the, the drivers, the conductors and the engineers, predominantly, yeah, all male, yeah, Right. But I think having the influence of, you know, the way that we advertise now, Karen and I get involved in International Women's Days around the town every year and we go out and we tell our story. And we promote the benefits of working for blackpool transport about, you know, it can be flexible. You know, it can be about you being given the skills to do this twice if necessary, if you don't get it right first time. If you're going through the menopause, we've got a menopausal policy. We're at an age (laughs) where that really matters to us. So we understand things like that uh, as an employer. And we encourage women of our age to still get involved in wanting to work for a transport industry. And we've also been able to sell the benefits of the things that we do around the sick pay, the great pay that we pay people, the fact that, you know, we get free travel, that we've got really good health and well-being packages mm. and that we're a caring organisation. That counts for a lot when you are trying to attract a more diverse employees. And I think also Blackpool is very high on the LBGT front and we get lots of LBGT people working for us. And that that caring bit really attracts that demographic and we look after people really well. Yeah, because you're both real champions of diversity
2: and inclusion in the transport sector, aren't you, and business in general. Tell us a bit about your work with the likes of women in transport and, and how you get involved with that. So
3: I've done the lead course for women in transport this year. And what really appealed to me was it wasn't all about writing essays. It was all about people. Mm -hmm. So it was quite a big deal for me because I'm not particularly confident in a room full of people I don't know. And it was on Zoom, so I guess that made it a little bit easier. But the Zoom room, if you like, was filled with other like-minded women from very varied transport organisations from across the country. And it's been, I would say, the biggest eye-opener of any course I've ever done because it was all about me. So normally when you do a management course, there's a section on finance, a section on recruitment you know a section on grievances it was nothing like that it was all about leadership experiences and other people's experiences and other people's behaviors and I think the light bulb went on for all of us at one point because we thought oh we're actually we're not going mad there's a reason why we feel like we do especially as women especially if you're in a room sometimes with men and you want your voice to be heard but you think I better not say that because you are going to think I'm silly or what's that got to do with, you know, technical parts of vehicles. It gave me the platform to have a voice and it was all about leadership. And also revisiting some great sort of theoretical models that I haven't seen for a long time since I did qualifications a long time ago. So things like understanding that people need, before you start putting fancy things in place for people, there's some basic satisfiers that people need. Unless you get those right, you can't build an empire built on sand. Yeah, I'd say, it was, say it's a groundbreaking course and it also comes with a really good graduate level qualification at the end. Oh, so, um, yeah, so it's modular. Well, when I want to say no essays. There was homework, and some of it was quite <laughs> One of the best pieces of homework or coursework was asking up to ten people to give you holistic feedback. That's practically given me my personal development plan for the next five years. Fascinating. Yeah,
2: yeah.
3: Were you concerned
2: about what they might say or did you feel fairly relaxed about it? I, don't, I wouldn't say I was relaxed, but I was ready because I thought, I really want to know this. I was really curious. So you could affect change and or
3: just be understanding or... Just really understand how yeah. other people saw me. And I deliberately didn't go for easy wins. So I chose Jane and James as the directors. I went to the chair of the board because I thought I'm curious as to what, if anything, he knows about and me. And, is, yeah. Yeah, and then some of my peers, some of my direct reports, and I also chose a personal friend who I've not known that long because I thought, and she's a businesswoman as well, I thought that, that'd be interesting, and I also thought I'll ask my husband. There was some really strong similar themes that came out, but it's also helped me with massive stuff like I should delegate more, mm-hmm. I shouldn't. Parents as much as I do I need to be you know have that voice a lot more because what people were saying well you know you have actually got good things to say you need to do, do a bit more of that so I've got a plan now based on what I need to do more of what I need to just keep the
2: same and what I need to change. Yeah a bit like going away that external perception collection can almost give you i don't know it's really clever isn't it yeah if you use it in a constructive way yeah. it can be a light bulb moment it Sorry, really I was I, a
3: to, I didn't take offense about any of it i thought right come on if I, if I really mean this and if i really want to progress i've got to listen yeah.
2: well it sounds like you thought a lot about the people you chose mm. as well to give that feedback because you had a real range of people rather mm. than like say taking the easy Option and getting people my best friend to and my mum. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you chose a real mix of people, so who knows what any of them might have said? But you've yeah. taken it all along the chin and been constructive with it rather yeah. than take it. Can I, I feel free not to answer? But was there one particular thing that surprised you? The chair of the board was saying to me that the further
3: up the ladder some people go, it really changes their personality, or they think their personality needs to change. He's seen people change from being actually really nice humble people to being quite the opposite of that and it's a real turn off and you don't bring people along with you so just because you've got an amazing job title doesn't mean all of a sudden you've got to be unavailable Mm -hmm. or dismissive you're saying it's quite the opposite and you need to keep that humility with you however high up you go because that's
2: a sign of a great leader. We were, when we were trainees in my old firm, We were the first thing we were told was you treat everyone the same, from the bottom to the top and top to the bottom, everyone in between, and you treat them the way you want to be treated yourself. Yeah,
3: and it, and the next piece of work we're doing throughout 2021 is really getting to grips with how frontline feel, especially after COVID, because a lot of people mm-hmm. are feeling very vulnerable, fragile, a bit unloved, if I'm honest. I bet. And their voices are every bit as important as the senior leadership team. You know, they're, they're the rocks, aren't they, that, that hold our company together. They're the cold so face, aren't they? They mm. are. And they're the people that are the closest people to our customers as well. Massive just, font just of knowledge, aren't they? They probably know so much. They know everything. Mm. Yeah, they do. So we do engage with them anyway. Of course we do. But that's become a little bit fragmented during COVID, mainly because of logistics and not being able to have that closeness to people. So we're on a mission in 2022 to get close to people again. Really get to know what makes them tick, because we want them to stay here and we want them to have a great career in, in
0: transport. I think the power for me that I've seen Karen being engaged with women in transport is I first came across them about six years ago when Beverly Bell used to be the traffic commissioner and I were having a night in London because we were working and we thought, well, what should we do this evening? And rather than go, you know, to a restaurant or a bar, we decided to go and listen to a talk that was going on for women in transport. And even though I'd worked in the rail industry, I'd never really aligned myself to women in transport. But Beverly and I went that night and we were so inspired by some of the stories that we were hearing. And we both said, you know, at our level, this is really something where we've probably worked out for ourselves. Yeah. But it made us think about all those other young girls in the room and, you know, what sort of mentorship or support were they getting? Remember, the talk was something to do with human resources, getting more women in transport and imposter syndrome was something which was very, very high on the agenda. One of my favourite topics. Absolutely. But I've got to say, you know, mentoring Karen while she's been in Blackpool Transport, it doesn't matter with some people, no matter how much you tell them about how great they are and how they can do this and how, you know, it's going to be okay. It's a personal thing. Mm. And I've got to say that since Karen has actually been on a women in transport journey... And she's had the opportunity to work with like-minded people and work it out for herself. I've seen such a difference in her confidence, the way that she portrays herself and the way that she communicates and engages. So to me, there's a story there, isn't there? Yeah. If you're doing a bit of mentoring, you, you're you not always the expert about having a one-to-one mm. and saying, oh, here's your appraisal and go and do a bit more of this, you'll be fine. It doesn't work like that. People have to experience it for themselves yeah. and be with like-minded people. That's really interesting as well—the <laughs> fact that
2: you've mentored Karen and now she's done her own women in transport journey. But from listening to you earlier when you were talking about your career and your role at the moment, you're clearly a mentor and inspiration to other people, and in, you've got that sort of fight in your belly for promoting diversity and women in transport. But at the same time, you still need that guidance and that support and allies i suppose mm. to of like-minded people it's really an interesting dynamic it isn't is it? interesting it? and the imposter syndrome and little voice has cropped up in pretty much every, every yeah, podcast i wonder if we did the same for a men's podcast whether that would be the case but uh, i think it, more people have it than we realize yeah. i think um, I, once I was managing it i once i can't remember who it was now that said men do get imposter syndrome they just choose to ignore the voice. And I thought, that is so right. Really funny, it's so right. They do get it. They just choose to ignore it. Isn't that top not... advice? Because that is what you do. You just manage it, don't yeah, you? Yeah, it it is. And, and obviously, men are far better at managing it than women are, <laughs> as, as we're told. But even Sarah Bell, she's the only person that I've spoken to who said she doesn't get imposter syndrome. She refers to it as her RADA performance. Does she? I like that. Yeah. And if you think of Sarah Bell and her personality, she comes across as one of the most confident Mm. women you could ever meet, sure of her own role and her own abilities, yet she still gets that rather performance, as she calls it. But, Mm. yeah. It definitely decreases when you work with people who help bring you on. I remember my first few years in practice, I was convinced I'd be in a big board meeting and someone would come and tap me on the shoulder and say, you're in the wrong room. <laughs> Which so tough, isn't it? You've got your bit of paper saying you're qualified, you're employed, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fascinating. I suppose we're quite fortunate now, I'd like to think, all of us as women, that the men that we work with or come across in our roles are far more aware, first of all, of what value women can bring to that conversation or that situation so we're far more supported than we ever were. But there will be women now who don't have that level of support and that encouragement, and so still feel how we felt perhaps all those years ago far earlier in our careers especially those starting out on their own journey like the
0: students you two encounter at the colleges and so on Mm. but something that women in transport have been working on and karen's part of the working group is that when you're creating a model to try and create a bit more diversity in an organization it has to start with the touch points before people even start to think about applying And one thing that Karen's working with them on is that each employee, be it male or female, but more for females is they must have an individual career pathway the minute they come into the organisation. Because what we do is we induct people, don't we, with a corporate package, and we send them all out there. We make them into mini-me's, whereas everybody has the need to be treated individually. Yeah, I think if you can crack that... And with something we're trying to do next year in Blackpool Transport is make everybody's pathway unique to being an employee. Then you have the opportunity, I think, to be able to get like-minded groups of people together to work on different situations. We've been trying it a bit. We've had two prototypes. We've got a group of six people together, and they've been given the opportunity to talk about challenges that they're having with five other people. And it's been amazing to find out that actually quite a few of them have the same challenges. It's just that they're not been able to talk about it within a group and they've worked it through together and they've come out with friendship, they've come out with confidence, they come out with camaraderie yeah. and they know where to turn. They need to have this conversation again.
2: Did they find it hard to open up at first? There's so many dynamics in a working role. There's competition, whether we'd like to admit it or not. There's fear of weakness being shown. And I think they're quite big barriers to overcome in that situation, aren't they?
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely massive. I'm a common purpose graduate. So part of a, a big network of inspirational leaders across the world globally. And I came across this sort of like model when I used to work in Virgin. And I'm actually chair of the committee now. So I mentor aspiring leaders in Lancashire as part of my Common Purpose membership. But one thing Common Purpose does is um, they do leadership programs where they get groups of leaders together. And you have the ability to be able to go into other organizations and see how things are done. And you get a chance to spend time with some amazing leaders. So valuable, and you learn so about valuable. the the demographics of sort of like Lancashire examples. You get to meet the LEP and understand how that works, how the local authority works, how the county council work, mm-hmm. how the big corporates are contributing to you know what drives this economy in this area. All that learning gives you the confidence to start looking outside rather than inside for solutions. Yeah. So that model comes from there. And what we found is, is if you bring that into an, an organisation, it gives people the confidence to say, actually, I wouldn't mind doing something like that, because that would give me the ability to talk to somebody from another organisation and find out what solutions they've got, what challenges they've got. Mm-hmm. So slowly now we're taking this down into the middle leadership. And hopefully, you know, they're having the opportunity to engage with people from the National Health Service, from the Prison Service, from British Aerospace and different organisations in the town in Lancashire. So they're getting those connections. So to me, it's about giving people the ability to be able to do that and not just, you know, look inside Blackpool Transport for the solutions. And mm-hmm. we've done quite a lot of work over the last five years with that. It's been very successful. It's
2: clever, pooling knowledge. That is it just, it yeah, sounds it's like a really
0: valuable process, doesn't it? Yeah. Yes. It is. It's excellent. It yeah. So really I, I became a world fun. leader in 2016 and I was able to spend time with 100 people from across the commonwealth we split into two groups of 50 so we got together as a cohort of 100 in london and it was sponsored by princess trust princess anne at the time was sort of like our sponsor in a way and our challenge was how can you get people within the commonwealth to actually work together to the benefit of the public private and not-for-profit sectors So, we split up into two groups. One group went to Manchester after we'd spent two days in London. One went to Glasgow and we worked on this challenge and we came up with solutions. But that wasn't the end of it. We then had to go abroad and look at different models. So, some went to Singapore and I went to Ghana. And going to somewhere like Ghana, you know, you learn about corruption and you learn about, you know, where the power is and you learn about how if you're trying to come up against a solution with a different demographic, how that could work. And it was awe inspiring. But to me, it gives me such a, a diversity in the way that I look through the window now at certain things and how I deal with different pockets of politics in particular for the LEP and the local authority and how I've got to deal with government in my role with CPT and how I deal with, you know, local associations and people like that. So to me, that learning, I think, within Blackpool Transport, now people becoming more aware. Their problem solving is more diverse. They go through a range of sort of like thought processes before they come up with a solution. Karen's been a big part of how we've taken that forward in the organisation.
3: The cultural intelligence side is so important and such an eye-opener. And you also realise as well, when you're working with different people, whatever leadership course or any kind of interaction like that, is that people often tell you stuff in the safety of that space that they might not say Mm, in a normal work Mm. setting. And I think that's every bit as important as people's, you know, skills and knowledge Mm. to be really, really understanding of what people might be going through. Mm. And, you know, for me personally, my my 30s were a write-off with one disaster after another. And when my son was a baby, his, his father was very, very poorly for a year. He survived what the relationship didn't, and i worked all the way through that and things like that you know I'm quite open about it but things like that that were just horrific at the time have made me stronger things yeah. like that come out in these in these conversations with people from all sorts of different places because I think when people feel safe they do open up about their own lives and you don't know what people have to deal with before they even get to work some days yeah. and that can really help your humility and also help you your skill set so that you can empathize with other people as well.
2: Don't you think it changes your relationship with who you're having that conversation with? Absolutely. I once had a conversation, I got stuck in a car with someone coming over from Manchester. and had a conversation with this person and he shared his perception of me which was actually the polar opposite to what my life had been like up to that point. So I just sat laughing. What are you laughing at? I mean, you're like so off the mark. Mm-hmm. But it changed our relationship mm-hmm. going forward yes. for, for the better, actually. Mm-hmm. He was like, that was a complete eye-opener, that three hours in the car. And I learned things about him that I had no idea yeah. about. Mm-hmm. And, and we continue to work together. But we haven't almost got an unsaid understanding of trust between us. You have to put yourself out there a bit. We
3: really do. And I think as well, once people understand that you understand them and more about what they're dealing with, they work better, they're more open. Sometimes it's a weight being lifted off people's shoulders. So we use the term reasonable adjustment a lot, don't we, when we're talking about human beings, but it's beyond that. It's beyond the fact that they might need a different keyboard or a chair that supports their back. Is it connection, maybe? It's exactly that. It's yeah. about having an emotional connection with people. And that's what we really need to get to grips with next year because a lot of our staff live on their own. A lot of them have got caring responsibilities. And, you know, they've got a very difficult job on the front line yeah. with very difficult customers sometimes. So I think the life experience... That we've we've had as well is as important all
2: day long as what you've got academically or or meeting your job description. Mm-hmm. That's really challenging in itself, though, isn't it? Because a lot of people, like Joe said earlier, you don't want to appear weak in front of your colleagues or your superiors. Mm-hmm. Um, so to actually open up and have that conversation about what's happened at home that morning or something that's happened over the weekend or just to, you're feeling really bad that day it's not historically been the acceptable thing to do no. is it to bring that into the workplace and it's breaking down those barriers and yeah. those preconceptions of that sort of behavior that those people need to realize they're not weak for telling you i'm just not feeling right today Absolutely. or this has happened or that's happened and so if you're building a culture that where that is the norm that's absolutely fantastic, isn't it? Mm-hmm.
3: Well, one of the first, we had many conversations when I first started, didn't we? Because I'd go up to Jane and I'd go, I can't believe this. I can't believe what I'm seeing. And one of the expressions that I learned from Jane was don't mistake kindness for weakness. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, kindness, it should come, we manage from the, the head, the heart and the gut don't we? And you can be so kind, it doesn't yeah. mean you're weak, it just means you really care about other people yeah. and you you want the best from them, you want the best for the, for the business but you want them to be okay
2: as well. It's interesting isn't it that that's something that you said all those years ago Jane to Karen about kindness isn't weakness and now all we seem to hear about in the press,
0: social media and wherever is be kind. Mm. Better to be kind than right apparently. And I think you know if you think about all the boardrooms that you must have all been in And there are times where, you know, you see some very heated conversations going on because, you know, A and B want to win or get the solution that suits them. Well, you know, you have to remember that you're not going to win every battle. And you've got to think to yourself, the ones that you don't win, sometimes it's about you have to wait and you have to keep going back because eventually, you know, things will change. And I think if you take that approach, you don't have to be macho when you're in the boardroom to get your point over. You have to listen and sometimes you have to accept but never give up on, you know, what it is that you think is right. Mm. And that came from Julie Middleton. She actually is a, a one of the forms of a common purpose because, you know, you look at her, you think she's wonderful and she must get everything right. And she gets everything that she wants from this world because she's created such a, a magical thing through common purpose. But no, she doesn't. And she always says, never give up, always go back and keep trying. And I think that was my mantra when I came into this job. I remember at my first album meeting, only female. Well, Cynthia was there then, if you remember Cynthia. She's from Cardiff, but she never came to as many meetings as me. I was the only woman in the room. And I always remember them saying, I've been here about eight months and we've got some Volvo buses that had to go in for a conversion. And I understood what was going to happen to the Volvo buses. I knew what type there was and what conversion we were getting. And when at the end of the meeting, you have to brief out what's happening in your world. And I talked about those Volvo, Volvo buses. They all went, "Oh, she's getting it now. She's getting there. She'll gosh. know all about it shortly." Like <laughs> oh I just sat, but you know, sat back and waited. Yeah. Started talking about customer stuff, talking about change, talking about you know what's happening with employees, and suddenly. Blackpool Transport started going up the pecking order. It wasn't wasn't catalytic converters or nuts and bolts or so sometimes you have to bide your time and you know you will get there but you don't have to be you know somebody that's macho and assertive just understand when your moment's right.
2: We get it a lot when we're advising clients because they're always keen to win in every situation. I do transacted transactional work for many years and Though it's not meant to be aggressive it's a point scoring exercise for lots of people and we'd always have that mantra it's about winning the war not every battle is the war Mm. not every battle just like you say bide your time be kind like Karen said be patient and you will share a little bit about yourself and you'll probably come out with a better outcome yes than that big row Mm. yeah definitely where do you two get your inspiration from are there certain individuals that you look to or have looked to in the past? That's very wide-reaching,
3: really. People who manage to do great things coming out of adversity, that's a great one, and that includes some of our staff. We've Even people that have started an apprenticeship here and, and thought, I can't do this, I've got dyslexia, or I didn't do well at school, and then they come through with flying colours with support, stuff like that. I need to reflect on that one. Have you got anybody that comes to mind straight away?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's been a few people along the way. I mean, obviously working for Virgin, I've met some amazing people um, as part of my Virgin journey. And they've been very, very entrepreneurial, kind, people-focused people. But I think, you know, when I met my husband, we've been together 32 years. We met during British Rail Days. And, you know, unfortunately for him, you know, he was a, a senior manager. He got treated appalling, like, and I saw what corporates can do and how they can make people feel through somebody who was you know, naturally very, very kind and only trying to do a good job. And it stuck with me. And he, since then, has been you know, a very successful businessman. And he, it's taught him a lesson, a very, very strong lesson. And I always think to myself back to that situation where there are certain people, particularly women in this world, that can aspire to want to be really good executives or leaders, but it's the way that you go about it. And I think that being a female, some of the things that I've learned is, is that if you treat people well and if you give them the consideration and you give them the opportunity to be able to be honest and do a good job, then you're going to get the best out of them. If you take on the macho image and you think that you deserve a right to be at the board table because you're a woman, then that isn't the way to do it. So I think, you know, my, my husband going through a very bad experience as an employee taught me how to be a better person and how to treat people and how to really just, you know, see what good could come of somebody standing up for themselves. So a bit of a mixed bag, really. And uh, You haven't read it that out. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting yeah. because actually your
2: inspiration has come from seeing how it shouldn't
0: be done. Exactly, that's than, what I'm trying to yeah, say. Yeah, yeah, rather than somebody who's, gone and done it in the way that you now aspire to do. yeah I, I just saw somebody go through a really bad time and it, it still haunts me today and i would never ever do that and it's unfortunate it has to be him but you know it's been a great learning curve for the relationship and for me becoming a senior and person within an organization because i learned how not to do it basically from quite a new time as a manager and it always out on in the end <laughs> <laughs>
2: Everything happens for a reason. It does. I'm coming yeah. out with them all today, aren't I? Bingo cards,
1: actually. House. <Yeah.
2: laughs> Julia was supposed to be here today, but she hasn't. Joe's covered instead. But Julia would not forgive me if I went back and didn't ask you what it was like to
0: work with Richard Branson.
3: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: Completely careful. <laughs> Richard Branson is a facilitator of people with good ideas. That's what he does. He takes really good people that have got great ideas and makes them very, very successful. So he doesn't get really involved in the day-to-day stuff. Okay. However, one of the times where I saw him at his best was when we just had a rail accident. It was called Grey Rig, and it happened when the train had left Houston. It was going over chap, which is quite a high part of the on the way to uh, Glasgow, and the train got derailed, and unfortunately, um, a lady was killed, and quite a lot of people were injured. I was on my watch. I was on call that night, and I remember the next day just racking up at the hospital at Preston to see what was going on with some of the accident victims and to see what needed to be done. And he was already there and he was there with the chief executive at the time, Tony Collins, and he'd been to see the driver, and he'd been to see some of the families, and then he'd gone straight to site to find out from Network Rail at the time who was this caused by, what was the problem, because he needed to know, do I take responsibility for this or is it something that's gone wrong with process? He found out the reason and he went straight from there to Lancaster where he was meeting the family of the deceased person to explain what had gone on. And I thought, wow, that is going that extra mile because he'd taken personal responsibility for something that had happened in one of his companies to make sure that he'd got the solution so he could tell a bereaved family what the cause was, so they weren't left thinking or having to go through an inquest and one thing and another. And he was there for me, he was there for the driver that had been badly injured, he was there for the people that had been injured, and also for the family that had been bereaved. And I just thought, if that's not leadership, what is Wow, and there was lots of fun times as well. You know, I was in the yellow submarine with him in Liverpool. <laughs> we gone to do? And you know, the thing was going underwater oh, it was quite fancy. and we were lucky to get out alive. You know, and it was like a PR drunk gone mad. And we been to parties at oh his house crazy. and stuff. And you know, we've we done lots of interesting things together. But that for me was the icing on the cake. And I just thought you need to learn from that, Jane. And you need you need to be around when the chips are down, and you need it by your people. Yeah, that's brilliant, isn't it? It's a great. great, a, pretty great e- a pretty extreme example, I suppose, of, Very extreme, of being there for your people when true. the chips
2: are down. But, yeah, incredible.
0: What a yeah. story. I can also tell you about how I got my job because when British Rail was privatised and I spent a, a year working in London, I was of all the catering down there and all the conductors and, and the drivers, all whole of Houston Station, tanking, shunting, you name it. We had the job, the Houston team, of showing the potential Franchisees around the business. So we had Sherwin from Sea Containers and we had Virgin looking at the West Coast franchise. I remember when the ransom lot were looking around, they were talking about customer and they were talking about, you know, employees. Your language. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And the Sherwin were all about finance and, you know, productivity. Mm. And we were hoping that, you know, Virgin would get it and they did. Now, we're all expecting just to be transferred over, but no, the top team had to go through a process of you were going to be given a project to do by Virgin, and if you succeeded, then you were in the chance to go forward for a job. And my project at the time was, I remember it well, because it was 1997, and it was when Tony Blair had got the job as Prime Minister, and Tony Blair was going to travel with Richard Branson to launch the brand new Virgin Franchise from Houston Station all the way to Manchester, traveling together. And my job was to put together a dream team of staff. We had resources to get handpicked people into red uniforms, makeup done, hair done, and we're going to produce this brand new product on the train. Get away from the curly sandwich; it was going to be that pitta bread experience. So all these lovely smells coming down the train, pitta bread sandwiches, a lot. The day that the project was due to roll out, we were there with my crew. It'd be about four o'clock in the morning, checking all the stores, making sure the train looked pristine. And about two hours before the train was due to depart, somebody went, pitter bread the pitter bread's not been delivered but <laughs> oh, it's God. the main ingredient in the pitter bread no oh, bread experience what we to do so the tutor man you said the cafes there's some cafes round about and i used to lodge in euston went around have you got the pitter bread no <laughs> <laughs> the last cafe i ended up in right mm-hmm. in walks richard branson and i'm there talking to the cafe owner and all his hands are bandaged up and you know, you, you I was like a little school girl. Oh, Richard, I thought he must know who I am. You know, I'm that important. <laughs> <laughs> I'm and I'm trying to grab hold of his hand to shake it. You know, he's going, for God's sake, who is this bloody woman? Get off me. <laughs> so I explained I was in the cafe because I was in charge of the project today to get him and Tony Blair up to Manchester but we've got a problem because we've got no pita bread delivered. <laughs> did, you, did you use the phrase, the pita bread I experience? Did. <laughs> I did. So, I said, and, um, so he said to me, what are you going to do about it? I said, well, I'm not really sure, but I suppose you want me to get pita bread on that train today. He said, yes, but on. And they have none. The, the guy that owned the cafe has none. I said, anyway, what are you doing in here? Because we're cooking breakfast for you on the train. Why are you in here? He said, oh, well, I always like to come and see whatever the cafe owner's name was. It must be this local cafe and have a brew before I – so I thought, oh, that's great. So I came out, and uh, the advice had been given by the duty manager by then who had phoned me. Get yourself down to Marks and Spencer's <laughs> because they, they have a delivery. Had they and, been ringing around Yeah, and they're yeah. going to open up for you at 7 a.m. So I ended up going to Marble Arch in a taxi getting as much pitch bread as I could, getting it back there, and we got it on the train. Richard Branson tracked through to find out if I'd achieved this objective, well, quite clearly he could see that. <laughs> and I was offered to join the team and take over as the regional manager for everything from Aberdeen all the way down to Preston.
2: And that became wow. part of the
0: five people that were chosen to the Dream Team about how we took the organisational change board in the early days. So I was there on day one when the first striped train left Preston Station, waving the flag to say, Persian have taken over. It was amazing from there on. But that's how I got my job. And he definitely knew who you were. He definitely did. <laughs> he actually got off a train at Preston Station with a copy of his book, Losing My Virginity, hand-signed by him saying, what a great job wow. you're doing. I remember that happening um, because, you know, he was just that amazing person. You, you felt really part of a really close team, And you wanted to make it work because you had so much admiration for him, so much pride in the Virgin Trainers uniform and what it was all about and what it stood for, but more importantly, the way that you're treated. And that's where my ethos came Mm. from that really stood me in good stead when I took over here and I turned up on my first day and people were being known by a number and not even a name. Mm. And there was so much command and control. And I won't go too much into that, but where we are now compared to where we were is a million miles away. And we have to get that back on track. We've just been through COVID and people are looking to us for great leadership now about how we revive, learn and really reinvent this company again.
2: But you both sound like you love a challenge. Yeah. yeah. Mm,
3: every day is a different challenge. It really is. Yeah, no two days are the same. That sounds really cheesy. But you can come in in the morning with a plan. You might know what meetings you've got, but you don't know what's going to happen in between but that keeps it fresh all the time yeah, yeah. it's it's moving at quite a pace mm. i know we've got some catching up to do with with other organizations because i'm sure some of the stuff we've said to you you're thinking oh my goodness how can that be happening in 2021 but it takes years and years and years to change culture yeah, definitely. And i think that's why every day is so different because you just don't know what's going to happen
2: mm. it sounds like you've both got really full packed days but do you have, ever actually
0: have time to unwind and, and turn off from Blackpool Transport. Well, you have to make it happen. You do. So if you want to be a good leader, you've got to find time for your own personal health and well-being, because if you're not fit for purpose, then the organisation mm-hmm. isn't So your job is to make sure you surround yourself with a business brain that can keep the place ticking, A, when you're there, and B, when you're not. So it's important that you do that, you know, in the first couple of years. You know, it's 24-7 to start with, but now I can step back a bit because I've got great people like Karen to support me, and she's got great people to support mm-hmm. her. But for me, you know, I'm, I'm just 60 this year and I've got to think about keeping myself fit. I'm a mum and I'm a grandma and I've got three beautiful dogs and I've got a wonderful husband. So I can't neglect all that. So I have to find that balance. And I find it in a way which is great for the organisation and the shareholder and the board because they believe I'm doing a good job. They tell me that in my appraisals and my family are really happy with the time that I spend with them. I love to run. So I run three times a week at least and keep myself fit that way. And it's probably the only thing that I do do, but that is enough. We have a, a boat business. I'm a qualified yachtswoman. I don't spend a lot of time yachting these days, but we have quite a lot of interesting boats between us, me and my husband. And we like to go on holidays and we like to go out for walks and stuff. So I find that balance because I have to manage it. And that's the only thing you can do is if you can't manage it, then unfortunately it's going to stress you out and it's going to make you ill. So you need to be able to do that as a good leader. So well
3: I'm learning fast from Jane because I am a natural warrior that is just wired into me and I've realised the hard way that if worry takes over you all the time, it really stunts your creativity and your productivity. So I've put things in place that are a really great distraction. So I've just started um, online antiques buying, and because I love doing, I love interiors and I love doing things up, and that's really good fun. Made some big mistakes, (laughs) (laughs) and we've also just bought a dog, so we've had a dog for four weeks. So. I had a a plan for 2021, which was to stop smoking, an adult lifelong habit. I never thought I'd be able to do it. So I've been smoke-free for three months. Oh, that's amazing. Congratulations. I can't believe I did it for so long. Do you feel better? Yeah, I do, mentally and physically. But part two of that is to get fit. Okay. so the dog is part of that my husband and I are in a good position we've not got any dependence anymore and we live by a beach so no excuse what kind of dog so is it? He's a little cockapoo oh I love cockapoo and he's called Frank, Frank. And that's oh, I've
2: got one called Bertie Bertie and Frank we should have <laughs>
3: them <got one> together <laughs> I love it so Frank is after Frank Lampard so Jane and I <laughs> are both aren't we really passionate Man City fans yeah. but my husband is a Chelsea fan he's a Southerner ah. so He's called Frank. Yeah, I was wondering
2: where the Chelsea connection was coming in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that. <laughs> it's interesting you say you're I mean, maybe I'm you are a warrior. Maybe I am overstepping here, Laura, but I'd say both you and I are warriors, natural warriors. Would you not say to a degree? Yeah, I think we are. We are both kind of perfectionists and warriors because we are perfectionists and want everything to be just so. Good to have warriors in your team, I think. But I think that exercise massively helps me. It it forces you to stop, whether you walk or run or do something. It clears your head in a way that nothing else can. Interesting. I'm a big runner. Joe. you run as well, don't you? Mm -hmm. And it's the only time I find that you are completely away from absolutely everything. You're on your own and you have that real clarity. Some of my best ideas happen when I'm running. Me too. It's yeah. just remembering them when you get
0: back. Mm-hmm. From the run. That's the problem. <laughs> if you look at my Route 1 article that I did a couple of months ago, I was running and it is just on the cusp of it becoming winter. And I came up with the Route 1 article about. The condition of waiting shelters, and you see all these oh, beautiful Canadian buses going past with all these lovely, warm people, and but wine. the shelters aren't up to scratch. And you think to yourself, yeah. this is, you know, people have to wait in these conditions. Yeah. You'd want to get on a bus, you know. So if you read that article, that will. Oh, well. oh brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, it is, yeah, Yeah, I find myself there. If I have a great idea,
2: I'm thinking. I've got to repeat this in my head so I can remember it when I get back. <laughs> yeah, because it just gets lost when you get back otherwise. You find yourself back to the emails or, or whatever it might be and it's gone. It's also a good way to lose yourself. It's a bit, I think running is a bit like reading a book for me.
0: Sometimes yeah. I'll just
2: daydream a bit.
0: That's when those ideas pop up. Yeah and you learn so much about nature i mean the migration of swans and geese amazes me now because i live in the countryside near the coast and the migration i've seen it since we've been living there for the last seven years but you know i know the timing i know the flocks yeah, and, yeah. and the looking noises, out the egrets yeah. coming while i'm running the tide coming in the tide going out it's a real connection with nature yeah. it really is yeah it's, it's brilliant
2: it's very good for your mental health as well
0: isn't mm-hmm. it yeah mm-hmm. yeah Sometimes they do say just
2: looking at something green can massively boost you, and I, I do believe in that. For me, it's the beach, like you mm-hmm. said, living by the seaside. Yeah, you you get you take things a step further, though, Joe, and go a bit more extreme. Like you go out in the sea when it's freezing cold first thing in the morning. I do you, I do, do the New Year's things. Day dip. Wow. Um, they do it up at Cleveley's. Right. But uh, the last oh, couple of years, have been tidal issues. So we've just started our own. So, me and my family usually go... And they might the kids might paddle. Then I oh, go wow. in. I wore a hat this year and a swimsuit because it was that. <laughs> no, the, hat, the hat actually made quite quite different. We were over at the beginning where the tram station is. There were absolutely loads of people getting in North there. Pier. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, yeah. They're going at North Pier good every spot. year. It was a good yeah. spot. I think yeah. I'll be doing that again this year. But, uh, not a Great idea.
3: Might try that. Every yeah. time my parents come to visit us, they do wild swimming all yeah. over the place. Thing, oh, yeah. They always swim in the sea, and I'll go down there with them and we can't understand why you don't come in with us. That's because the trunks are going fast all the time. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and the staff are going yes. <laughs>
2: It does something to you. I don't s- call it swimming in the sea. It's uh, probably a- over-embellishing it a bit. But just actually going in in the cold water, even for a few seconds, there's a great book a Wh- uh, which Wim Hof has written. It's all about the science behind it. But it's really, it's very invigorating and mm, that's what it's they say. Clarifying. But, uh, I thought you were going to mention him because he's the cold shower guy, isn't he? He is the cold yeah. shower guy. J- Joe J- had us all cold showering for <laughs> weeks. Wow. Yeah, you build yeah. it build up, up for ten like five seconds, <laughs> to ten seconds. I was like, do this because Joe told me. He's known as the Ice Man, and it uh, can really help your immune system. Mm-hmm. They can also helps mm-hmm. with stress reactions. So to it was actually very good after oh, a few sessions, you've got up to about 30 seconds and you, you don't really feel the cold as much at all, you? do. You, you come out really ready for the yeah. day. Yeah, I'm really ready for the day like that, which uh, usually I get in the shower and I'm like, oh, I'm quite tired today. <laughs> Not like that after you've switched it to cold for a This was during the height of lockdown as well, so Joe and I'd be on a Zoom call, we're both like, yeah, we've done a cold shower. Okay, so I think to finish then, what are your Top three takeaways for any woman wanting to progress, not necessarily in transport, but just
0: progress her own career and her own development. I think for me, always think about the breadth of your ability, your experience and your knowledge. And if you can be aware of that, then you can probably conquer the world. Because you've probably done something in your life where you've used every skill imaginable in the book. I needed to be taught that to complete my CV to get this job. I didn't realise, you know, just how good my CV could be. So I always keep that in mind. I think also be a good person, create your own brand. If you create a good brand, it'll stay with you. I had a great brand when I worked in the railway, when I worked for Virgin, and I think it's took me in good stead for getting this job. People thought I was a good person and I got a good CV and it helps. It really does. And I'd like to think that my brand is still intact and, and people think highly of me. And I think lastly, don't ever lose yourself to work. Don't do that. You know, don't become somebody that just lives and breathes for work. Life is such a gift. It's an experience and it's a journey. And you've got to find a way of making it all work for you. Otherwise, you're not going to enjoy your career. And the career is there to be enjoyed. It's there to be savoured and it's there to pass a message on from. So make sure that you enjoy that time and, and you balance it right.
3: So something really important to me is acknowledging that sometimes you're surrounded by people who are better at certain things than you are. Mm-hmm. So I've got two incredible direct reports who are both brilliant at different things. And to be quite honest, wipe the floor with me with the detail of some of those things. But I'm really proud of them. As part of what I hope's my legacy here, I hope to see them as the next executives or directors of the company another thing is to make sure that you're not embarrassed about your life experiences and when you look at the skills you use to manage them however difficult they were use those in some of your work situations because things that happen to you in your personal life do transfer to your work life and it also helps you to manage issues that other people are dealing with and the third one is to live by your own values so don't ever be frightened if you're sat in a room and somebody's saying something that quite clearly isn't right morally don't be frightened of challenging that and don't sit on your
2: hands because you've got a voice just like everybody else and you've got a right to use it fantastic well we actually got six top takeaways for everybody listening there so hopefully a complete set of skills for everybody listening Brilliant. Thank you very much, ladies.
0: Thank you. i really enjoyed it.
2: Thank you. Thanks
3: Thank for you.
0: us.